Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Welcome to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. I hope you have found it very valuable and that you've had reflective moments in terms of how it's impacting your life. And I am so excited today. You know how I'm always excited. Nozipum um, Banjo is somebody that I don't hang out with, but I have been observing from afar. So this is the new generation of what I call wise people. I hope you'll find the same essence that I see in her. Nozipo, how are you? I'm fantastic. What a beautiful introduction. A new generation of wise people. Thank yeah, you. I really see you as that. Um, and thank you because you got such a hectic schedule and you gave us time. So that's amazing. Can I say congratulations for yes, the latest? You can. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations on your engagement. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm floored by it. I mean, the love has been uh, from every corner globally, even. Mm. Um, it has it's just amazing. been amazing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm transitioning mm. into this uh, uh, another form of self uh, yeah. and trying to figure out what being a wife means. Um, and so that's, that's a journey I'm looking forward to. I think you've got a great role model in your mother. So yeah. this is going to be great. So this is perfect to ask you, what was your upbringing like? Do you have any siblings? You know, what are your treasured memories? So I have, a, I have a, an interesting configuration of a family. I'm the eldest of three girls. Um, but both my mom and my dad had a child each before they married. So I have an older sister and I have an older brother, mm. older sister for my mom and an older brother for my dad. Um, but we grew up as me and my three and my two sisters. And later on in life, um, you know, the family kind of sort of said, no, but we are bigger than what we are. So now I find myself with four siblings and having to, to, to transition from thinking I've been the eldest all my yeah. life to a middle <laughs> child. <laughs> the middle child syndrome. So, with, so yeah. I, I kind of feel like I'm a middle child with firstborn tendencies mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. But um, I do have siblings. And my childhood was, you know, when I think about it, it was actually very stable. So one of the gifts that my parents gave me and my siblings was the gift of stability. Um, before my mom passed away about two years ago, they had been married for 37 years. Um, and, you know, even though like many black South Africans born in the 80s, like me, we all have our stories of, you know, being born into poverty, being raised through poverty and so on. The one thing we never lacked was family. Mm. And so even today, you know, my fiance always says to me, one of the biggest gifts you've given me is a gift of family. I watch your family in a way that I've never seen your family before. Yeah. And that's because that's all I've ever known. My mother was uh, what we call an anchor, not only within our family, but within the community. And so our house was always filled with people, cousins, aunts, um, community members. She was always taking somebody's child through school. She was always uh, we were always being raised with other other children within the family. So, you know, I have biological siblings, but I have so many brothers and sisters because of who she is and was. Um, and so my childhood really, um, I think the best way to, descript, to, to describe it would, would be very anchored mm. in family and stability. My fondest memory, though, 
my dad used to smoke uh, many years ago. He, he gave it up, I think, about 20 years ago. Thank goodness. Uh, yes. <laughs> he became enlightened. He became yes. enlightened. But before that, I used to remember as a child, um, I'd climb up onto his lap and um, he would be smoking Rothmans. And oh, I used to brand. watch the, yeah. the curly-whirly yeah. things go up. And it was always the smell of Rothmans and the, new, the, the, the news on the radio yeah, in the but, background. Yeah. Um, and those were our special moments together. So I grew up also a little bit like a daddy's girl. Yeah. Um, and my mom, was, my mom and I were very much like each other. We're two peas in a pod. And because of that, I think we also had a very um, tumultuous uh, relationship because we just are the same person. That's mm. always amazing in dynamics of families, isn't oh, yeah. it? Yeah. You are a conversation strategist, and I know a lot of people are going to be very um, curious as mm. to what that is. Uh, for the people that are not familiar with that expertise, mm. can you explain what you do? I know when I put it in simple terms, I always say that my job is about helping smart people have simple conversations that make the world a better place. And I stumbled on it, and I actually came up with the term conversation strategist because actually there wasn't a blueprint uh, or a list of a profession uh, for me to say, oh, that's what it is. I had to stop and reflect and think, what is it that I'm actually doing? And so practically what it looks like is that I get invited by governments, by international organizations, and by businesses around the world to come and use the science of conversation to unlock strategy, to unlock policy, to be the bridge between the idea and the execution. And the only thing that actually enables that bridge and creates that dot connect between idea and execution is the conversation. It's about framing the questions that help us move to breakthrough thinking so that we can actually begin to implement. So I would... Um, you know, moderate conversations that have impact on the world. So, for example, um, the International Labour Organization is one of my big clients, and one of the big conversations that I'm, I've been ha helping the ILO have over the past five years or so is how do we ensure that uh, the global labour market produces decent jobs for the billions of people um, in the world? How do we ensure that in 2020 we can say that we no longer by the way, have 280 million people working po in poverty. So they're employed, Gosh, but, but they're the still part of the working poor. Yeah. That's 280 million people Gosh, in the world. That's a lot. And we have to translate the aspiration of wanting to get rid of this number into execution in different national policies around the world. So that's what I would do for governments and international organizations. And then at a, for corporates, so it's interesting. I get called in almost like a, a secret weapon. Yeah. So it would be, don't, you don't have to tell everybody that you're coming. It's just the top executive yeah. uh, team or the global team. And they'll put the strategy in front of me and they'll say, how do we use the strategy um, so that it ignites the person that has to execute it at the ground level? So we begin to almost like unpack it and say, how would we land this so that um, the teams that have to deliver on this um, connect with the why, yes. connect with the what, connect with the how. And so we begin to deconstruct strategy using the science of conversation. Now, when I went to university, um, there wasn't anything in the prospectus that described yes, what this, you're doing, yeah. right? And so um, when people kept on asking me, what do you do? Um, 
I actually realize it is the convergence of strategy and conversation. Yeah. And hence, I'm a conversation strategist. And people have a misunderstanding because the minute you are doing that, they like you an MC or program director. Oh, yeah. Which is exactly why I thought I'll ask. So you clarify that there is a difference. And you know, it's such a brilliant question, and it's, it's actually what I found is that it's a South African misunderstanding, if you will. The rest of the world seems to have figured out that there's different roles. Uh, in South Africa, we have, you know, MCs, program directors, presenters, um, and, and then we have moderators, facilitators as well. But there is this idea of just a convergence of yeah. these roles. Yeah. And until we take the time to actually educate the market, you almost cannot blame the market for yes. thinking that. And so one has to be very deliberate about articulating and framing what it is that you're you doing. Do. Yeah. So when I get a client who comes to me and says, Nozipo, won't you please MC? I take the time to say, let me help you understand why what I do is not MCing. And if you do want an MC, I can refer you to an MC because there is a place and a role For and an there's MC. value, yes. but that is just not what I do. Interestingly enough, you were on one of our main business channels and you left that. Mm. Did you not fear that not having that platform will reduce your visibility in the market? I definitely did. It was a real fear, but the transition was just... It was calling me and it was so strong. I realized that the platform was continental. It gave me, you know, such a great exposure. But I knew that the impact that I could have outside of the studio um, and outside of one particular platform to not report on the conversation, but to actually shape the conversation, that, that idea was so, more, so far more attractive. And so I took the risk and I took the jump and it wasn't an easy one. And I remember um, the, the day it clicked was I was actually having a conversation uh, with someone and I was relaying this very fear. And he said to me, so let me understand this. Can you just articulate to me clearly, what is the thing that you're most afraid of? What yeah. is the boogeyman in oh. this equation? So I said, actually, well, the boogeyman is January, uh, December, and April. Yeah. Because as a, whether you're a moderator or conversation strategist, in January, December, and April, nobody's actually looking for your services. And then he turned around and he says, well, that's three out of 12 months. Yeah. Are you telling me that you, you can't do enough work in the nine months nice. that actually you don't even bother working in those three months and you just take them off as a holiday. And you choose not and to work. And you choose yeah. not to work oh. anyway in those three months. And I remember just thinking, of course, I've got nine months out of three. And it's been absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about the relationship with the platform is they are now clients of mine. So we've been able to retain the relationship. But if you ever have that fear of, can I jump? Can I go into the entrepreneurial space? You have to name your boogeyman. Yes. And until you name your boogeyman, you're probably going to be harboring um, a fear that actually doesn't exist mm. and a fear that's not as big as you're making it out to yeah. be. I always say, imagine the worst. So, okay, you take that jump yeah. and you lose it all. Is what you're wanting to do worth it? Exactly. And if it is, go ahead, because you're never going to fail. Because exactly. you're going to make sure you don't fail. Exactly. You know? Um, do you think you're studying political economy and developmental development finance mm -hmm. adds um, some edge to you being a moderator, especially of mm. global conversations? 
Absolutely. So my academic journey, I'll be the first to admit that I didn't have it all planned out. It was kind of like haphazard. So my first degree was in political science at the, at the University of Pretoria. I chose political science because second to law, it was the cheapest program in the perspective at the University of Pretoria. That was the only reason why I st studied uh, political science. And in my heart, I thought, ah, it's fine. I really know I'm good at speaking. Maybe I'll go into politics with it. Um, and I had this idea that I'm going to be an ambassador and that's going to be fine. I then moved, I had an opportunity to do my first master's at SOAS at the University of London. Mm. And um, there I focused on international studies and diplomacy. And so quite interestingly, my world started opening up, you know, not only because I was studying in the UK, but what I was studying, I was studying you know, um, global economics, I was studying international law, I was beginning to look at the politics of Africa in relation to the politics of politics of Asia, as an yeah. example. Um, worked in between, came back to South Africa and decided I was going to do a second master's. Um, and that's when I started doing a master's in development finance. Those three things have stood me in such good stead. Yeah. From a finance perspective, it's helped me to be able to frame the questions that allow us to have a conversation that moves us beyond the periphery mm -hmm. and beyond the surface. Because I understand intrigually uh, the, 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 the principles of the financial instruments mm. that we have on the continent that we could leverage for development. And that development conversation can be extrapolated into any other part of the world outside Africa. Mm. The thing I rely on the most, funnily enough, is actually my training as a diplomat in London. Yeah. Because the work that I do is actually diplomacy. Mm. It's really about getting different voices to converge around a single vision and each of them to bring their relative strengths to get the job done. done. And that's mm. what diplomats do. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking you are very rich in terms of your thought process and the, and the person you are. Are you able to crystallize what your unique value proposition is? <laughs> if you are not here tomorrow, what will mm. we miss? If I was not here tomorrow, the world will miss an African voice that drives global conversation with depth, breadth, and intellect. Hmm. That's it. That's what I do. I am unapologetically African first, first and foremost. I don't care for being South African. I am a child of the continent, yeah. first and foremost. Um, I am intentional about going to the world and not only being an African voice that is shaping global conversation, but um, being an African on those stages to say, actually, beyond just me, I'm going to bring insights and lenses and coloring and nuances to the conversation that make sure that this continent is not a periphery in the conversation, yes. as it so often happens. And my commitment to the work that I do is I, for example, nobody writes my questions, nobody does my research, because I don't believe that you can get depth and breadth by reading something that somebody else has prepared for you. Mm -hmm. So at the core of everything that I do is that I, I bring intellect because I bring academia and research into the process of producing what we then see on stage. As you would appreciate, what is on stage is 10%. 90% yeah. of the work is how much you are committed to the process of sitting in the problem of the research that you've got to actually surface insights. Yeah. And 
and you know, I always say, people will say to me, oh, how can you speak about all these subjects? One day you're speaking about ICT, the next day you're speaking about the pharmaceutical industry. And I say, well, actually, I don't have to be an expert in all of those industries. I need to be an expert in asking the right questions that move the conversation forward. And so my, my, my process of researching is about committing to, to surfacing the questions that move the conversation and make the conversation consequential. Yeah. Because the minute you and I are having a conversation for sake of conversation's sake, yeah. then, then I've not done my job. But if I'm raising and surfacing questions that make the outcome of the conversation consequential, then I've done my job. And I always say that not every conversation is going to end with a beautiful answer to yeah. the question that I've raised. The most impactful conversations are the ones that I leave with more questions. Yeah. I must say, you know, the preparation that it takes to do that, it's very yeah. difficult to price. Yeah. Because <laughs> people don't, because I do bespoke yeah. work. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I have to change it the very next minute exactly. because I've seen something in the group or the leadership team that I'm working with. I'm yes. like, this is not going to land. I have to go back and, and change. How did you get to understand how to price yourself? It's a very difficult journey, and I think it's a brilliant question. I mean, I still get people today who say, who call me up and say, I want to do what you do. What do you charge? And I think, my goodness, it's actually, I don't have a, a, a series of products that are sitting on the shelf. I literally, you know, when the client reaches out to me, um, you know, I apply this thing called jobs theory, which is coming back to this idea of understanding what is the job that we want this conversation to do? And so I'll sit with the client to unpack and to uncover the job. And once we have gotten to a point where we understand what it is that we want this conversation to do, I then go back and I say, okay, from a time perspective, what, are, what is the input from a time and research perspective that's going to get us to get this job done? And then I'll come back and say, this is the, the, this is the rate for this piece of work. Yeah. And I've, I've, been, I've been very blessed to have um, repeat clients who now understand yes. that we don't have products on yeah. the shelf and mm -hmm. every single piece of engagement is going to be very different. And when you say to people, no, I actually don't have a rate card, they think you are we hoarding crazy, your... Yes, your <laughs> but also, it's also the, what has created you, the information, the education, you you have prepared yourself to be able to engage in 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 that field. Yeah. So people forget that that you know you may have a different qualification. Yeah. You may do different types of prep, and you're gonna have a different product because yeah. of the way you are. But if you had more money than Oprah <laughs> and did not need to ever work to make a living, what how would you spend your days? Whether I had more money than Oprah or if I had no money at all mm -hmm. and, I were, and I had no responsibilities in the world, I know the one thing that I would do, I'd teach. Mm. Which you're still doing in a way, isn't it? In yeah. a way. Mm. I, just, I, I have a deep love uh, for the, the profession of teaching. Um, there's something that you get when you see somebody's light come on. Uh, yeah. because you've been mm. able to break down the idea into simplistic forms yeah. and they get it. It is a high. It, it's, it's a definite high and I've dabbled a little bit in it. I've um, had a very brief stint at the University of Pretoria as a junior lecturer. I do, um, you know, guest lecturers uh, on invitation from time to time. 
But I really think that that's what I do. Uh, I and would you can still do it. You will still do in between your hectic schedule. <laughs> I'm getting another job here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we shall talk. What's the most courageous decision you've ever taken in your life so far? And what drove you to that decision? I think my most courageous decision was actually taking uh, a jump from... Uh, I was working for a corporate. I was very young. I was about 26. I had a big title. I was the head of corporate uh, communications and branding for Africa. I had 13 African countries that I was looking after. And then the, the media platform that we're speaking about came knocking on my door and said, hey, we think we'd love to have you uh, join us. And we got into the conversation and I looked at the uh, comparatively where I was and where I was yeah. going. And the, 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 the financial package from the media platform was less than half yeah. of what I was currently <laughs> earning. I don't and, like. and, and you can imagine as a young person, you think you are on an ascent. You're finally on the ladder. Uh -huh. And now it's just a couple of rungs, yes. you know, systematically. And I remember just thinking to myself, Noz, what does your heart want? Mm. And just coming to the realization that actually, you know what, I, can, I don't have to drive the car that I'm driving. I can take this back. I can move into a smaller place. I did move. I moved into a smaller place. Um, I, it made a big difference, so I didn't actually have to get rid of my car. But I did fundamentally change my lifestyle um, because I thought, you know, I really I want to give this a shot. I really want to see what it's like. And I think if I hadn't, I might not be here today. Um, it is, it, that decision became such an important stepping stone to where I am today. And I not, do not for a moment regret giving it up. And so sometimes I think the, we, we are tied by golden handcuffs mm -hmm. and it takes courage to, to, to free yourself from them. Yeah. Um, and I think I was so grateful uh, for the advice that I got from so many people who said to me, the stuff that you have is just the beginning. You can go back to the bottom, you know. and you're still going to and you're still going to rise. And that's what I did. And exceed where you were. Yeah, that is so key because yeah. a lot of us are not doing what we love. Yeah, because we're drinking the champagne, <laughs> and yeah. it and it makes us so vulnerable because yeah. you are miserable. Exactly, you have the most expensive car, you have an expensive house, but you are just miserable. Yeah. You're not living your best life. Exactly, are you living your best life? I think God has been so good. God has been like so good. <laughs> my fiance says to me, like, you know, uh, I, so my birthday is coming up. He's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I sat there and I was like, I don't know if I want anything. I got it all. Like, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I'm good. I'm happy with the work that I do. I, I'm blessed with a partner that I love, respect, and admire in so many ways. My family is supportive. My, my in-laws are amazing. I've got a fantastic group of friends and a solid sisterhood around me. It doesn't mean that every day is a, is a bed of roses, yeah. but on, on the net-net of like all, at the end of the day, jeepers, God has been good, hey? I... Um, um, I'm living my best blessed life. Okay, that's a new one. <laughs> you spent some time in Washington DC, DC working with the mayor's office there. Yes. Um, what insights, looking at our state of local government, mm. can you 
give us in terms of what you learned that we could incorporate? So when I was working in Mayor Fenty's office, I was part of um, an office called uh, the Grants and Coordination Office, which was a subdivision in the mayor's office. And what we did was we would um, coordinate grants and uh, donations and investments that were coming from the business community that were intended for the education sector in the Washington district. So uh, businesses that wanted to invest in schools, that wanted to invest in school programs. And so it was actually quite focused to look at how do you create the incentives for business to want to participate in a public-private partnership? Mm -hmm. um, and how then also do the programs structure themselves in such a way that there is a clear uh, return on the investment, uh, both from a financial metric perspective, but also from the social returns. How do you leverage the stories, the narrative that comes from the people whose lives have changed uh, to, to tell that story of, of the return of investment? And how do you track the investment of uh, the, the, where the impact has actually had the impact on the children? And this landed for me when I actually uh, started working at the Mlambo Foundation when I came back uh, from D.C. And the, the foundation was focused on um, rural schools and rural principals. And our job was to take the principals on a leadership journey that would shift their mindsets so they, they did not see themselves as just principals, but they saw themselves as CEOs yeah. of entities. Yeah. So they had shareholders, they had returns. And I realized that one of the biggest mistakes that we were making in terms of how do we get the financial flow from business to these rural schools is that we have um, star rural schools and everybody for example all the corporates and all the businesses go to the same school so you have the maths and science program there the leadership development program everybody there the food in. the feeding scheme program there and so the food uh, garden um, everything that was happening there and because of that when there was an uptick in performance of the school, we had no way of measuring who did what and who was responsible for what. And so we just actually don't have a way of beginning to say, there's nothing wrong with having different stakeholders yeah. contributing, but how do we firstly disseminate um, funding so that it actually reaches all the, the, the places it needs to. And, and for corporates to break away from this idea that they need to go to a rural school that's already performing so that they can latch on to... Yeah, yeah, because it's good PR. It's good it's PR, good. whereas instead of going to a low base yes. and go to and a then school that really impact. needs it. And so PR can be dangerous. Have you heard of the imposter syndrome? Yes. Um, for those of you who don't know, it is defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persists despite evidence of success. Do you suffer from it? Absolutely. And Absolutely. how do you handle that? You know, I think the first thing is a consciousness around your imposter syndrome moments yeah. and when they creep up on you. Because they creep up on you. You, find, you suddenly find yourself in a space that you didn't think that you would, you know, you'd ever yeah. find yourself in. And... Just as you're getting your confidence, you get that tap on the shoulder that says, but do you really, really belong here? And I, I've just had to raise my consciousness in those moments. Um, first reaction is to have the conversation with myself. Yeah. Like, knows what's actually happening here? Is this, uh, you know, should you really, are you really undeserving to be here? Um, and if sometimes I can't get through it myself, because sometimes it's so strong. Yeah. 
again, you need to be to need to surround yourself with people who are not only brutally honest with you, but who are there to help you snap yeah. out of these things. And so, my go-to person has always been my partner, who's always saying to me, "Okay, let's let let me let's not do a motivational speech. Let's just start from what are the steps that have gotten you here." And then, as you begin looking at the work you've put in, the value that you've you've surfaced for others how the invitation to have a seat at this p particular table has come to be. You realize how silly uh, this particular moment is. It's happened to me many times. The last time I think is when I got my first board position. Yeah. And I remember thinking, Mina, mm -hmm. sitting on boards, Yeah. how? And just, you know, really just being paralyzed. And here I was with the seat at the table that I'd earned. And I had to go back to somebody that I trusted in this particular time. It was a mentor who said, let's just let's just have a moment to talk about what did they say they saw in you. Yeah. Now, of each of these things that they've invited you on, which of these are not true? And that's how we invited Miss yeah. uh, Miss Imposter to step out of the room. <laughs> but also, I mean, we, I think we do forget that they have the privilege of your time and your services. Yeah. You know, we're yes. always thinking how... Uh, we have the privilege, yeah. But your presence brings something of value as well. But to frame that, yeah. sometimes we get caught up because the the syndrome is so strong mm. that you you're unable to reframe what's actually yeah, happening. happening. And so you really have to surround yourself. Um, you know, it's call it a trust circle. Um, people who are going to ground you when you start yeah. uh, getting a big head because this it does happen. But also who are going to commit, be committed to validating you and reminding you of your worth yeah. and reminding you of why you deserve what God has blessed you with in every moment. Yeah. And I, my circle of trust is everything. So imposter syndrome always comes, yeah. but I, I always have people who turn around to say, no, let's have a practical conversation about this. That is very insightful because I had somebody I dated years ago and uh, so whenever I felt insecure about exams or something, he was like, oh, but you always like do well. I'm like, I don't feel that way. Yeah. I don't take it for granted. Yeah. So from your perspective, you're thinking, well, she's always doing well. I'm like, no, this is not how I feel. So it's always good to have people who don't think like you just being a drama exactly. queen, exactly. that you literally feel like yeah. I who, need that yeah. support at the moment. Who understand that you're coming to them with a the real fear. Yeah. What I write at the top of every sheet when I'm about to uh, step onto a global stage is don't laugh, but this is a lyric from a song yeah. uh, between Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston. And the lyric is, we were moving mountains long before we knew we could. Yeah. And I look at that and I, and I think, gosh, my mother moved mountains, my grandmother moved mountains in their respective spaces, doing their respective things. This is just me facing and moving a mountain. And tomorrow, somebody else will face and move a mountain. It's okay. Yeah. I can do it and I'm going to do it well. And I will have another mountain tomorrow and I'll move that too. That's what we were, this is what we were born to do. Yeah. We are built for the win. Yeah. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. We could talk the whole day, you know um, that. Um, but in closing, um, what legacy do you want to leave behind? When I think about what I want the world to remember me for when I'm gone, I want to have created an industry that before me actually didn't exist. I don't want to be the only conversation strategist in the world. I get messages and DMs and inboxes from young ladies who say, 
thank you. I now know what I'm doing, or I now know what I'm pursuing. I'm going to be a conversation strategist just like you. And my heart soars um, because I think before me this didn't exist or in that particular framed um, way. Um, and so this is part of the legacy that I'm building. I'm also, I also want to be re remembered for professionalizing this work. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people who, who, who look at what I do and they're like, oh, she's a moderator, and then think that everybody can do that. And so they start doing it as a side hustle, which just makes my blood boil. Um, and, and because of that, the, 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 the profession of conversation isn't actually professionalized because everybody thinks that they can do it and so they have a main job and then they have the side hustle and I'm going to set the example if I have to that this is a profession it can be the the core of your income generating activity and it can be the thing that changes the world you don't have to be both you don't have to straddle being a journalist and a moderator you don't have to straddle straddle being being part of business and a moderator because once you do that you're actually not giving the one thing conversation demands which is absolute undivided attention if you cannot give a conversation that chances are you're not fully invested in it and you actually don't understand the value of the voices around you. So this is a this is an industry that I'm committed to building. This is an industry that I'm committed to professionalizing and I'm going to normalize the idea of young black women from the continent shaping, driving, galvanizing global conversation. That's what I'm here to do. And this is exactly why we are having this conversation. Because from a distance, I could see what you are trying to do. And when you left the public platform, I realized how committed you are. Because usually people have their public platform because they're so scared that without it, I don't have value. Yeah. And that's where my respect for you just shot up. Thank you. This is why we're having this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Zomi. I'm sure you're enjoying this journey. Keep going. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Zomi. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey. <laughs>